You're listening to audio from Grace Family Church. If you'd like to explore more resources or give to our ministry, please visit us at gracepsl.org. You ready for Daniel? Open up your Bible to Daniel 12. That is the last chapter, I might remind you. But it will not be the last sermon. I thought I was going to finish up today, but there's just a little bit too much here to, to bite off in, in one sermon. Uh, and so uh, we're going to be looking at it uh, this week and next week. And I just want to kind of jump into the text today. It'll be on the screen. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up uh, or your uh, Bible apps, uh, electronic devices, whatever you want to read on. Um, but we're going to be looking at the whole chapter, Daniel 12, 1 through 13, and then uh, working our way through it. Verse 1, at that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress, such as not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. Then I, Daniel, looked up, and there before me stood two others, one on one bank of the river and one on the opposite bank. And one of them said to the man clothed in linen, linen, who was above the waters of the river, how long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? The man clothed with linen, who was above the waters of the river, lifted his right hand, and then his left towards heaven. And I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying, it will be for a time, times, and a half time. When the power of the holy people has finally been broken, all of these things will be completed. I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked my Lord, what will the outcome of all this be? He replied, go your way, Daniel, because the words are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. From the time that this daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of 1,335 days. As for you, go your way till the end. You will rest, and then at the end of days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. All right. A lot of stuff in there, huh? <laughs> That's what I said. Thir the first three verses are, um, are basically a general summary of uh, future events that will take place in the context of the second coming of Christ. And the remainder of the chapter is basically commentary on those things. And those future events are for the tribulation, bodily resurrection of believers and unbelievers, reward of believers, and judgment of unbelievers. So tribulation, resurrection, reward, and judgment. Now, there are um, four basic models of how all these events will unfold, 
and all of them have merit. But my focus this morning will not be on various interpretations, but rather on what most of the models of end-time prophecy hold in common concerning these things revealed in the 12th chapter of the book of Daniel. In other words, I'm, this is not this morning firstly a teaching on what the Bible has to say about the end times. That would take forever. This is primarily a teaching on what Daniel 12 says about the end times. So we're going to stick with the text, not go very many other places. God's plan for the future is revealed here. And there are five things over the next two weeks we'll see about that plan. Number one, God's plan is sealed and secure. Number two, it has an end and a new beginning. Number three, it includes a great tribulation. Number four, it involves a bodily resurrection. And number five, it includes um, a final reward and a final judgment. So let's start. Number one, God's plan for the future is sealed and secure. Now, you probably noticed that twice in this passage, and especially if you've read it beforehand. And I always encourage you, of course, to do that. Don't wait for me to read it on Sunday. You know where we're going. Get a little jump start on it at home. Read it over three or four times. You'll get a lot more out of Sunday morning if you do that. But two times in this passage, the words of, uh, of this prophecy are said to be rolled up and, and sealed. Um, and of course, documents were stored, rolled in this date, in this time. But it says that it was not just rolled up, but sealed. And this was a term in the ancient world and also in the Old Testament that indicated that a document was, was certified, that a document was, was legal. No one could open it to alter it. Everything recorded in it was a binding and to be acted upon. So that means what God has said to Daniel about what will happen at the end of human history as we know it will not be changed, cannot be changed. It is sealed. It is confirmed. It is certain. It is sealed up. It is secure. Now, this prophecy was sealed up, it says here, by both Daniel and, it's, and it seems like, the angel that was over the middle of the Tigris River speaking to Daniel. Verse 4, it says Daniel is instructed to roll it up. And then in verse 9, Daniel is told that it had been rolled up and sealed. So what happens between verse 4 and verse 9 is basically a sealing ceremony. Again, in the ancient world, documents were recorded and then sealed by scribes. And then the scribe, in this case, of course, was Daniel. And after the document was sealed by the scribe, it was sealed by witnesses. And this is why the angel that's over the middle of the Euphrates was joined by two witnesses, one on one bank of the river and one on the other bank of the river. Verse 6, uh, one of them said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, how long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? The man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river lifted his right hand. What does that seem like to you? Exactly. Then he lifted his left hand towards heaven. And I heard him swear by him who lives forever, the Lord, saying it will be for a time, times, and a half time. When the power of the holy people has finally been broken, all these things will be completed. So before the two witnesses on the banks, the being over the river takes a oath before God 
by lifting his right hand and then his left to heaven. Then he immediately repeats what has already been communicated and says all of these things will be completed. In other words, it's sealed. God's plan for the future is sealed. It's secure. We may not understand it all perfectly, but it is sealed. We might say in our vernacular, it is set in concrete. And that provides us with a great deal of security. We don't have to worry about the future of the human race. We don't have to worry. I am not suggesting that we're to be nonchalant or dismissive of troubling things, but we do not have to worry. We, we, we don't have to worry about running out of natural resources. That's, that, that's atheistic. We, we don't have to worry about it. We don't have to worry about the temperature of the earth. We don't have to worry about national debt or future financial crisis. God, through the, all this, will accomplish all that he set out to do. It's sealed. It's sealed. We don't have to worry about used to be overpopulation, now it's underpopulation. We don't have to worry about radical Islam, China, or Russia. They're nothing to God. Amen. Our hope is in God, and His future plan for us is in concrete. Clearly, there are difficult days ahead. But all of it's heading towards a day when we will live forever under the benevolent and glorious and gracious rule of Jesus Christ in a new heavens and new earth. That is God's... Con future in concrete for us. That's God's plan. There is a day coming, Ephesians 2 says it wonderfully, we are saved by grace in this life for the purpose of being recipients of God's surpassing grace throughout all ages, age upon age upon age upon age. So the first grace is saving grace. Then there's grace for living this life, but all of that to qualify you to be the recipient of God's grace age upon age upon age, millennia upon millennia upon millennia to come. It's settled. So we don't have to worry. I think the thing that we should, however, be more concerned about is who's going with us. So in, in, amidst all of that happens and will happen, let's stay on mission. Let's keep the, the main thing, the main thing. Number two, God's plan for the future has an end and therefore a new beginning. Three verses, four, nine, and 13. But you, Daniel, roll up and seal the words of the scroll until what? The time of the end. Verse nine, he replied. This again is the angel. Go your way, Daniel, because the words are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end. Verse 13, as for you, go your way till the end. For uh, Verse 13, you will rest, and then at the end of days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. So throughout this passage, and actually throughout the book of Daniel, we see over and over that God has decreed an end to the current condition and circumstances of the human race. There is an end to the way things are as we know them right now. The book of Revelation says the same thing. It says that the current order 
of things will pass away, and Jesus will make all things new, a new heavens, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, and a new closeness with God. Revelation 21 goes on to say that as a result of this incoming, this influx of newness, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. They have come to an end. He was seated on the throne, said, I am making everything new. And this is a a huge part of, of our hope, of the believer's hope. And hope in the Bible, remember, is not a wish. It's a confident expectation that God will, in fact, do what he said he's going to do in the future. That's biblical hope. Now, human hope is, I hope, maybe, I wish, Biblical hope is a confident expectation of what is to come. And it serves for us, the book of Hebrews says, as an anchor for our soul. The idea is you're a ship and you're on an ocean and there's a a lot of turbulence. But there's an anchor that keeps you steady in the midst of that turbulence. And what is that anchor? Future hope. Future hope. It's a source of strength, especially in suffering. Things will not always be. As they are, day is coming when suffering will end. Injustice will be no more. We're going back to the garden of God. Perfection will be coming when Jesus returns. Right now, we experience as if it were a slice of the bread of life. But one day, we're going to get the whole loaf. And John tells us that longing for the day, for the, for the fullness of what Christ has purchased for us on the cross, that longing for that day not only strengthens us in the present, but in some mysterious way purifies our soul and keeps our soul from being stained by the world. 1 John 3, all who have this hope in him, Christ, purify themselves just as as he is pure. So the end is coming, and for believers, this is, this is a good thing. It means the, the full completion of our salvation. It means the full reception of our heavenly inheritance, of all that God has accomplished for us in Christ through his death and, and through his resurrection. We don't have it all right now. We have, Ephesians 1 says, a down payment. A down payment is a small part of the whole. The lion's share is yet to come. In the Bible, that's called our inheritance. First Peter says that inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. That inheritance will become ours in connection with what all that Daniel's taught, or all the angel is talking to about Daniel around the, the time of the second coming of Christ. The angel told Daniel that he had that in store also in the last verse. As for you, go your way to the end, you will rest, and then at the end of the days you will rise, and you will receive your allotted inheritance. So we have an inheritance coming, and it's the greater part of the salvation package. And because we have that, in, that inheritance awaiting us, we're not enslaved to this life. Amen. We're not held captive by this life. This life is not, not all that there is. We see certainly life is a gift to God, but it's a, it's a gift that right now is stained by sin. And that tones down our temporal expectations of the way things should be. 
We always need to remember that. Because if our expectations exceed that, we will always be disappointed. Disappointed in life. Disappointed with the way things are going. Disappointed in God because oftentimes we have the expectation of the new heaven and new earth in the present circumstance. No, that day is coming. That's our hope. That's our, that's our inheritance. Intrinsically, we know that there is something more because we were designed to live in a perfect garden. And that's still in every one of us. And therefore, as Paul says in Romans 8, we groan inwardly while we wait eagerly for our heavenly inheritance. We groan. There's a, a longing, a sigh in us. And that sigh comes out every once in a while, and it's usually in the context of disappointment or suffering. And then we remind ourselves, yes, but one day. Amen. But one day. See, that's the hope. Now, Satan wants to steal that hope away from you. He wants to steal that longing for what is to come away from you. And he does that so many different ways. And so part of fighting the good fight of faith, part of being a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ is keeping our, our heart fixed on that hope. The book of Colossians says in chapter 3, set your heart on things above and not the things of the earth. Now, that doesn't mean that we are not dealing with the things of the earth. We live here. We enjoy the blessings God has given to us in our life, but that's not where our heart's set. That, you don't set your heart there. Our heart is set what? On things above, where Christ is seated. Our heart is set on things above heaven. Our heart is set on things above that inheritance that, that awaits us, that we have in Christ. We set our hearts on things above. So the end gives way, the end that's coming gives way to our final salvation. And that's, that's a very good thing for believers. And therefore, the end is a good thing. But not so for unbelievers. For those who have not believed in Christ, the end is not a good thing. It's a horrible thing. It's something most people don't want to think about or even face or even think about. They don't want to think about that day when life on earth as we know it will end. They don't want to think about that time or that day even for them where their life itself shall come to a close. But it is an indisputable fact that that day will come, that their life on earth as they know it will end. It's an immovable fact that cannot be budged in reality. The only way to evade it is to either reject reality or believe a lie. And there are lots of lies, of course, that people believe to deal with this fact of the end. One of the ways is through naturalism. Naturalism is the belief that, that you are just a natural, biological human being, that there's nothing in you that's spiritual whatsoever. You're just a, a physical being. And so when your body dies, you just cease to exist. That's what atheists believe. You live, you die, you're done, death wins. Over. It's all over. And the lie of naturalism, of course, is that you lose any, any hope. And that loss of hope drives you to the futility of trying to find peace and joy in created things. And that is something no human being has ever done. The record is zero. The book of Solomon is, has a whole section on that. Solomon basically says, I tried this. Nope, didn't, make me, didn't give me that inner peace and joy and contentment. I tried this, I tried this, I tried this, I tried this. He said at the end of all my trying, I said, it's all futile. It is without Christ. Because the end of every pursuit of created things always ends in emptiness. You know that. 
Roller coasters are a great example. You can look forward to going on one if you're a roller coaster rider. For those of you who aren't, you go, this is a stupid illustration. <laughs> but there was a day when I was. Not so much uh, anymore. Moving that fast kind of bothers me right now. But there was a day. I remember looking forward to certain roller coasters, riding them with my kids. And, uh, you know, you go on that thing, there's all this anticipation. You wait an hour to get on it, you're ready, you know, and, and it's just like you're getting strapped in and you're wondering, should I do this or not? <laughs> and then it takes off. And you don't really think for much of the time. It's just going, and it's just happening. You get down at the end, you're screaming part of the way through. You get done, man, wasn't that great? We got to do that again. So you go stand in line again. So you keep doing that over and over again. Pretty about fifth, sixth time, you go, do you want to go again? Nah. Why? Because everything in life, no matter how thrilling it is, no matter what kind of natural joy it gives you, eventually comes what? Up to being empty. It doesn't, because you're created for more than that. By God's design, as a human being created in the image of God, you were created by God for more than that. Intrinsically, we know this. We were designed to live in, in the garden of perfection. So naturalism is a lie. It drives you uh, away from, from seeking after and God and finding true peace and, and joy. Another lie that people use to deny the rea- reality of the end is universalism which is where everybody goes to heaven. All religions, everybody, every single person, even the irreligious, everybody goes to heaven. Not so, says the angelic messenger to Daniel. He said what? Some will go to everlasting life. Some will go to everlasting shame and contempt. Some to heaven, some to hell. The Bible tells us that we are sinners, guilty before a holy God and deserving of hell. But we are not without hope. In spite of our condition, God loved us so much. At an infinite expense to himself, he gave us his one and only son who entered the human race in order to hang on a cross to bear the penalty of our sin, to completely satisfy the just demands of God's law. And when he did that, he said from the cross, it is finished. Finished now with the fact that it goes on being finished forever. Price paid. When we believe then, therefore, Romans 8.1, there is no more condemning sentence For those who are in Christ Jesus, there's only life and salvation. Jesus died the death we should have died, and he lived the life we should have lived. And because he did both of those for us, we forever will have right standing before God, in spite of the fact that we still sin. Because that right standing is not based upon our record, it's based on Christ's perfection. That's the gospel, that's the power that saves, that's the means of receiving God's gift of eternal life. Without it, we perish under the judgment our sins deserve. With it, we have forgiveness and life everlasting. So the lie of universalism is that it keeps people, again, from pursuing God's offer of forgiveness and eternal life through Jesus Christ. Another lie that people embrace, they're kind of two of the same, reincarnation and purgatory. Kind of twin sisters here. With reincarnation, you die, you come back, you suffer to pay off your karmic death, karmic debt with hopes of kind of improving your level in the next life. With purgatory, you die and you're not quite good enough to get into heaven, so you go into an intermediate place to suffer for a while. And through your suffering, you try to earn your way back into heaven. Lies. 
The lie of reincarnation in purgatory is that you're going to have multiple opportunities to, to be saved or to finally make it to heaven. Scripture says, nope, there's only one. There's only one. Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed once to die, and then after that, the judgment, right? One. Last way, there's more. Last way, though, is with annihilationism. That's uh, kind of a belief that's held by some Christians, actually, and also some, some atheists, but annihilationism is basically the Christian form is, yes, if you believe in Jesus, you go to heaven, but if you don't, you just kind of fade away. There's no hell. You just cease to exist. Against, again, Daniel 2 says, uh-uh, no, nobody ceases to exist. Every human being has a starting point, but none of us have an ending point. We will all exist consciously forever, either in heaven or hell. The lie of annihilation, and of course, various forms of that rob us of the sense of urgency to make sure we're right with God or that others know the love of God and the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ. All right, so God has a plan. It's sealed and secure, number one. Number two, it has an end and it has a new beginning, a new heavens and new earth. Number three, God's plan for the future includes a tribulation. It's spoken of throughout the Bible, either by name um, or alternative names uh, elsewhere called Jacob's Trouble. Sorry about that. Jacob's Trouble or the Day of the Lord or by its characteristics, a time of distress or the hour of testing. Of course, all the details of it um, are found in Revelation 6 through 19. That is basic, the tribulation. Daniel's uh, visions reveal three things about the tribulation. Number one, it'll last for seven years. We learn that in Daniel. No other place in the Bible in Daniel. And we learned that in Daniel 9, if you were here for that. We learned in Daniel 9 that God's prophetic clock countdown is, is in, um, is counts down in 77-year periods. 69 of those seven-year periods concluded with the death and resurrection of Christ. There is one more seven-year period, and it won't start until the future. There's a pause, and why was there a pause? Well, Christ came to his own, but his own received him not. At that point, God turned to the Gentiles, and Romans 11.25 says that that clock will restart once again once the full number of Gentiles have been brought in. Once that's complete, God will restart his end times clock with the last seven-year period, a.k.a. the Great Tribulation, in which his plan for the Jewish people will continue uh, all the way to bringing that last generation completely to Christ as their Messiah. We also learn from Daniel 9 that halfway through the tribulation, the Antichrist will break a, a peace deal that he had brokered with, the, with Israel, and he will commit the abomination of desolation. I don't need to go into that. We've talked about that a lot. But in verse 7 of Daniel 12, the angel says, from that point, from the point of halfway through the tribulation, there would be a time, times, and a half time until the tribulation was completed. Time, year, times, two more years, half time, half year, three and a half years. So then, in, Rev in uh, verse 11 and 12, the angel repeats that, but adds 45 days. He says, there's gonna be 1290 days. 1260 is three and a half. 1290 is three and a half plus 30. It's not really necessary you know this for your salvation, but it is in the passage. And then he says, 
Uh, he, he adds a few more days. Blessed is the one who waits and reaches the end of 1,335 days. That's three and a half years plus 75 days. Why the extra 75 days? Are you wanting to know? I want to know too. So if you know, let me know, okay? But I do know this. I could give you all kinds of conjecture, all right? All kinds of opinions, but nobody really knows for sure. But I do know this, something happens in those 75 days following the end of the tribulation that must be waited for in order to receive this special blessing that is mentioned here. Second thing about the tribulation, and this is more important, it'll be a time of, of unprecedented suffering. The angel says to Daniel, there will be a time in verse one of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. Wow, Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 24, there will be a great distress or tribulation as the NASB or the ESV say. It'll be unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. You know, when you take a comprehensive look at what the Bible says about the tribulation, it will be a time of unprecedented, unequaled persecution of God's people, apostasy of God's people, an unequaled time of conflict and deception and war and worldwide plagues and diseases, a time of unparalleled earthquakes and unheard of extreme temperatures and things like the sun going dark. But the thing about the, about, uh, the tribulation is the inconceivable amount of death and destruction. It will be a time of unprecedented suffering, especially during the last three and a half years. Which brings us to the third point, it'll be a, also produce the tribulation will, both repentance and rebellion. It says many, verse 10, will be purified. This is in the tribulation, made spotless, refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. So people are going to be saved during the tribulation. They are the wise, it says here, who understand. But the tribulation will also reveal that human beings at their core are inherently wicked because of sin. Notice closely what it says in verse 10, if we could throw that back up. It says, the wicked will continue to be wicked. It does not say that people are wicked because they do wicked. It says they do wicked because they are wicked. In other words, wickedness is something that's a part of our, our fallen nature. Jeremiah 17.9, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who can really know how bad it is or how bad it is capable of? Most people, when they hear that verse, they recoil. That's about somebody else, man. When they think of a wicked person, they think of someone who does hurtful and horrible and vile or malevolent things. And that's true. That is wicked. But when the Bible uses this word to describe human beings, it's not talking about that. It's talking about someone who rejects God, who rejects God's truth, who rejects God's love, who rejects God's son, who rejects God's gospel, who rejects God's forgiveness of sin. It's the person who says, God doesn't exist, and if he is, I don't need him. And if I did, I don't want him. Therefore, I refuse to believe. That is the ultimate 
wickedness in the universe. Which then becomes the fountainhead for all other wickedness. The greatest sin a human being can commit against another human being pales in comparison to the sin of rejecting God, rejecting God's truth, rejecting God's Son, His gospel, the forgiveness of sin, the inheritance that awaits. And you'd think right here in the midst of all this suffering, because suffering has a way of bringing people to reality, you would think in the midst of the greatest period of suffering in the human race that the whole human race would just turn to God in repentance and, and faith in Jesus Christ. Some do, but many do not. He says here, the wicked continue to be wicked. Instead of repenting, instead of trying. See, that shows you how deep and how powerful the nature of sin is in the human heart. Don't think of wickedness as like a, just a, the Adolf Hitlers of the world. Wickedness fundamentally is found in the rejection of God as he has revealed himself in his scripture, in his word. All human beings, <clears throat> without exception, are born with this kind of, you know, fallen, diseased, deceived, self-deceiving, self-exalting, God-opposing heart. All of us. We're all under the power of sin. That was the conclusion of Paul in Romans 3. You know, Romans 1, the heathen, right, is a sinner. Number two, the religious good person is just a sinful. Number three, what's the conclusion? There is no difference for all have sinned and fallen short of the standard, the righteous standard or the, or the glory of God, right? He says earlier in making his case in Romans 3, as it's written, there is no one righteous, not even one. Not one. Not one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. You say, yeah, no, 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 I, I sought God, yeah, because he sought you. We love him because he first. He's the initiator in this thing. We're the responder. Always remember that. All have turned away. They have altogether become worthless. You know what that means? It means they can't function in their God-given design. They can't function in the way God made them. There is no one who does good, not even one. And that is where the gospel starts, right there. If that is not true, then there is no need for the gospel. There is no need for Jesus to die on the cross. Why would God do something like that? Why would God, at an infinite cost to himself, give his own son up if our condition is mildly bad? We could just work our way in. Then we can just kind of line up, do a little, you know, moral reformation, turn a new leaf. No, we need Christ because this is our condition. Amen. Romans 3. 
See, that's where the gospel. So you'll never understand the gospel unless you understand why we need the gospel. Your worship will only go as deep as you understand these verses in Romans 3. Because at the end of it, you're going to go, then why me, Lord? And he goes, because I love you and I chose you. And that is the fuel for life right there. That's everything from life goes there. There's no hope for anyone outside of the message of Jesus' substitutionary death and victorious resurrection. That's why Jesus said this, I am the way and there's no other way. In essence, it's not a quote. And no one goes to the Father except the gospel's the only way. Why? Because the price he paid is the, is the price that was necessary. Nothing else would suffice. It was an infinite price. Human beings are incapable of paying an infinite price. Only an infinite God sends his infinite son who becomes a man to die on the cross for our sins. Hallelujah. All right, got to move. God's plan number four for the future involves bodily resurrection. We won't get all the way through this one, but let's start. But at that time, it says in verse one, your people and everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like stars forever and ever. Now, Daniel doesn't tell us where these two resurrections are, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting contempt and shame. He doesn't tell us when the resurrections take place. You have to look at the rest of the Bible, and when you do that, you know that they take place at different times on God's end time clock. But both occur within the context of the events that surround the tribulation. We'll leave that timeline for another day. What I want to focus on this morning, though, is, and finish up with is the nature of this resurrection. Why is it so important? Why is it so important? When a believer dies, it's only their physical body that dies. We say, well, they died. Well, they really didn't. Their body died. The body dies. The spirit and soul continue to exist. But without a physical body, that spirit and soul can no longer uh, interact in, exist in, remain in the seen realm, if you will. We talked about that in Daniel 10. So the spirit and soul enters the unseen realm, the realm of heaven, in a spiritual body. They are not without form. It's not a ghost or an apparition. They have a body, just not a flesh and bone physical body. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says to be absent from the physical body is to be what? Present with the Lord. But to be present, you have to have form. You have to have some kind of substance that makes you present, and therefore a spiritual body. But this spiritual body will not be our final status. You will once again, because of God's plan, because of God's decree, have a physical body, flesh and bone, forever. Millions and millions and millions of years. And Jesus died and rose again. You have to know it was not only to save your spirit and your soul, but to save your physical body as well. And not only to save you, your spirit, your soul, and your body, but to actually save all of physical creation. The gospel is comprehensive. It is not just about the saving of souls. It's about the saving of everything. The transformation of everything, not just the transformation of the human soul, but the transformation of, of all creation. When um, Paul gave his benediction, 
to the Thessalonians, he said this, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So three part, some say two, some combine spirit and soul together. That's okay. Spirit, soul, and body. So the salvation of your soul happened, the mo- or your spirit, let's say, comes the moment you believe. I trust Christ. That moment of faith, forever saved. Forever saved. The salvation of your soul, or the sanctification of your soul, your mind, will, emotions, uh, it starts right then, but it takes a lifetime. It's progressive. It's not instantaneous. All right? And then finally, the salvation of your body is also instantaneous, just like the salvation of your spirit. And it happens at the moment of resurrection. At the moment of resurrection, your physical body is transformed. At that moment of physical resurrection, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that believers' bodies will be changed from perishable to imperishable. That means they can't decay. They'll be changed from mortal to immortal. That means they'll live forever. You will have a resurrected, perfect, physical body, just like Jesus had after he rose from the dead and he appeared to his disciples. Do you remember what happened when Jesus first appeared to his disciples? They kind of flipped him out, didn't it? Yeah, they, they thought he was a spirit or a ghost. And what did he do? He corrected them right away. A spirit and a ghost have not flesh and bone. Reach out, touch me here, solid. Physical. So you're gonna have a flesh and bone body albeit free from the effects of sin, free from the effects of decay and disease and and other limitations. It's not only going to be a flesh and bone body like Jesus has, it will also be a glorious body like Jesus has. You'll have the capacity for glory. It will look normal. Jesus looked normal on the beach cooking up some fish tacos for the guys, right? He looked normal. There's no halo around his head, no aura around him. But it was also a glorious body. It, had the, it could be glorified. Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven. Not St. Lucie County. Well, part of us is here. I just got my tax bill. That's why I said that. And I'm not loving it. And we eagerly await a Savior from there. Well, heaven, we await. Await means what? He's coming. The Lord Jesus Christ, who, when he comes by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, all of creation, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body, just like his. The angel speaking to Daniel hints the same thing in in, uh in, in verse 3, so speaking of those who believe, he says, those who are wise shall what? Shine like the brightness of the heavens. This is speaking of glory in body. And those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Our resurrection bodies will have the, the capacity to shine like the brightness of the heavens and stars, and they will do so forever and ever and ever. So our resurrection bodies, sum it up, will be imperishable. They cannot decay. They'll be immortal. They'll live forever, and they will be glorious. But also... In addition to being imperishable, immortal, and glorious, they will also be very real, very tangible, very physical. 
And this same transformation that we bodily experience in our, in our bodies will be experienced by all of creation. Romans 8, we, Paul says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. Groaning about what? Groaning because of sin. Wanting to be unclothed and clothed. Wanting to be remade. Not only so, not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits or the down payment of the Spirit groan inwardly. One translation says we sigh as we wait eagerly for the adoption of our sonship. What? The redemption of our bodies. He redeems your soul, redeems your body. The body of every believer at some point in the future will experience transformation through the resurrection, because Jesus not only died for the salvation of our souls, he died for the salvation of our bodies. Now, we'll come back to resurrection next week, but I want to kind of apply this. Let's think a little bit deeper about this. One of the big takeaways from that would be this. Our bodies are not unimportant to God. Because, see, and this is what happens to Christians, because our bodies contain <clears throat> the nature of sin, and because we are so affected by that, we often think of our bodies as something bad, something that must be endured and eventually discarded so we can have something spiritual. That's really kind of Gnosticism. That's another thing, sorry. <laughs> now, now, God has a plan for your physical body, and that plan, that plan is, is not separate from your, your spirit and soul. It just happens at a later date because God wants to give you at the same time he gives to all believers a resurrection body. See, your spirit and your soul, hold on, get saved as an individual. Your body is going to be saved or transformed in community with every other believer at the same time. So when you come to Jesus, you don't come to Jesus with everybody. You come to Jesus alone. But when your redemption is completed, it will be in the context of every believer in Jesus Christ. Think about that for a moment. You know, when, when one person gets saved, when I heard that this morning about <clears throat> one of our new members and how they came to Christ. I mean, it just lit me up. I rejoiced right then. You know, when you hear how someone has come to Christ, what it does in you, it, it causes a rejoicing. For one, for one. You get touched by God when you think about it. For what? For one. All of the angels in heaven rejoice over Right, there's huge rejoicing in heaven. There's rejoicing on earth over one. Now think, think of the rejoicing when billions at the same time are transformed in the twinkling of an eye. Think about that moment. Now, <clears throat> the death of Jesus is not only intended to save our souls, but also to save our bodies. And that means your body's important to God, even in its yet unredeemed status. Your body makes the invisible visible. It makes your spirit and soul visible to somebody else. It makes the image of God in you visible to the world. It enables you to love God, whom we cannot see, by loving our brother and sister, whom we can see. First John chapter 4, right? So your body, here, here it is. 
Your body's not just biological, it's theological. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Don't you know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price, and therefore honor God with your bodies. This verse says your body is the dwelling place of the Spirit, the property of the Father who paid for it with the death of the Son. That'd be a tweet. <laughs> and that, if, that's, if that is true, and it is, there's some implications. That means something, doesn't it? And Paul gives several of those in the book of Romans. He said, since that's the case, therefore, Romans 6, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you may obey its evil desires. So you're gonna have a lot harder time fighting sin if you don't believe what the Bible says about what God says about your body. If you devalue your body, if, you, if, it's, if it's not something that God is going to save, then you'll have a, a lot harder time fighting sin in the body. Because it's not God's. It's just something that I have to have while I'm here, but one day I'm getting something spiritual. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. There's that word again. But rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. In other words, offer yourselves. And this offering of yourselves, offering your body to God, using your body for God's purposes, honoring God with your body, is all part of your worship of God. Therefore, Romans 12:1. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, the salvation we have in Christ, offer your bodies. It's a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing. This is your true and proper worship. And your body, you know, it doesn't start being important to God the moment you get saved and it becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit. Nor will your body become more important on the day that it is transformed in the resurrection. Your body, you know, your body was important to God right from the very beginning, from the moment of conception. Amen. Psalm 139. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. So it said here, you knit me together in my mother's womb. That word knit, knit in the Hebrew, you know what it means? It's like you fenced me in. You protected me in the womb, right? Then he says, my frame was not hidden. What's frame? The skeletal structure. Then he says, I was woven together. That word woven in the Hebrew is like, it's where the word embroidery. You were embroidering me. You were needle pointing me. It was a work of art, in other words. God's creation of the human body in the womb is a masterpiece of design and workmanship. And he says, he did this embroidering in the depths of the earth. That's a poetic term in the Hebrew language that refers to the womb as being just as dark and as hidden from human view as a cave deep within the ground. In fact, some translations actually translate this womb. So in the depth of the womb, 
You embroidered me. You made me. You formed me. My body is wonderful because you made it. But beyond the physical wonder of the, the human body and the womb is the wonder of the human soul in the human body. And that's what the psalmist starts out with when he says, for you created my what? Innermost being. The outer being is the body. The innermost being is the soul. God granted that soul and spirit right there, right at the moment of conception. It came into existence, not by a biological process, by a divine impartation. And that soul bears the very image of God from that very moment. Why then would anyone want to destroy that? You know, for years, for years, men and women have been deceived by the narrative that a baby in the womb is not really a human being, but just a blob of tissue. And therefore, an abortion was simply a medical procedure. Many erred under that deception. But many, many, and I've heard so many stories of people finding forgiveness and healing in Jesus Christ. There is no sin that is too big for God to forgive. Jesus paid the price. It is finished. Every sin paid for because of the blood of Jesus Christ. But you know, today, today, everyone knows abortion is murdering a child. Everyone knows that. Even the people that do it, Planned Parenthood, they all know it. They all admit it. Everyone knows that. In terms of the psalmist, it's tearing apart what God has woven. The embroidery, it's tearing it apart. It's crushing the frame that God has designed and God has built. It is destroying the creation that God has made. It is the taking of innocent life. And it's not a, a, just a, it's not a political issue. It's fundamentally a, more, more, a moral issue, an ethical issue, a divine issue, a creative issue. It is an assault against the character, nature, and design of God. It's the taking of life. And in spite of that, in spite of the, the medical, ethical, and moral fact, people are still fighting for the right to do it. Most recently in, in Ohio, we're now enshrined into the Ohio State Constitution is the right to end a child's life all the way up to the actual birth, during the birth. I, I can't imagine that. Why would anybody want a law that wants that? But there was two million people in Ohio. And hear me when I say that, that this is the biblical definition of wicked. That's a rejection of God. That's not judging, by the way. Judging is saying, I'm superior to them for doing that. I'm not doing that. I'm a sinner just like them. But wicked is. And they want to do the same thing in Florida. They want to enshrine that right and put it in our state constitution. They need 900,000 signatures. There are over 550,000 right now. There's all kinds of money pouring into our state from you-know-who, the powers that be. They're hiring thousands and thousands of people to go out and deceive people into thinking this is about women's health. It is not. Fortunately, um, those, the pro-life community in Florida are also doing the same. They've put together a petition 
for an amendment to make it or to protect the life of a baby in the womb and to have that enshrined into our state constitution. Here's the way one looks right here. And here is, if you're interested in signing, what you need to do, all that's in the purple. Just that, register identification or date of birth, either one. We'll have uh, plenty of people to help out in the foyer. We got two eight-foot tables out there if you're interested in signing that. You might have already done so. I don't know if it'll do any good, but we have to do it. Amen. There's some things you don't do because you go, you know, I know that we got a good chance at this. You do it because it's right. You do it, it's, you do it because of Psalm 139. You do it because Jesus on the cross spilled his blood for human life, for spirit, soul, and body. You do something because it's right. That's why we're doing it. And that's why I would take the time to handle this delicate issue right in the middle of a sermon on Sunday morning. It's that important. Amen. Because of God. Father, we pray for our state right now. We pray for every person in this state not to be deceived by this, by this amendment that they would, in fact, see the validity of life in the womb as granted by God and that they would, um, they would be on the other side of this. And there would be a great surge even though we don't have any money, we don't have much, much might, Lord, um, we have you. And so we ask that you would act on behalf, that you would work your will into this state and cause us to be people who respect life, respect your gracious gift of life at all stages. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.